0: Welcome to the 74th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I am your host, Charles Woods. This episode is another entry in our Emerging Scholar series, our first of the season. On the podcast today, I talk to our inaugural winner of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, Abby Levesque de Camp.
1: One of the things I really wanted to do with this work is to draw a through line from scholars like bell hooks and other Black queer feminists to say like, some of this work has already been done and it's just about seeing it in the light of these new forms to say like, we can draw a line from rhetorical communities to possibilities of better material worlds queer memes are rhetorical, that they are a rhetorical scene, but that these these groups or these sorts of, even when they're not formal groups, they're often like little pods or channels of content, that they represent queer community writing in a way that I, I felt wasn't being explored. And I have some claims about what I think a meme is, and I think that's been a particularly fun endeavor for me is to say like what are memes like beyond the basic form of an image macro with text like what rhetorically is a meme how is it functioning as language as citation these rhetorical scenes have certain kinds of potentials for power so they have potentials to start to move us toward justice. I talk about a little bit the ways that they can um, help move us toward better uh, material worlds for queer people.
0: You'll hear more from Abby in a bit. Longtime listeners of The Big Rhetorical Podcast know that Early episodes are a mixed bag of conversations about writing pedagogy, technology, and conference and book promotions that are underscored by my development as an interviewer trying to balance expertise with irreverence. Then I found my groove interviewing and promoting the work of graduate students. So, I created the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series. So far, this unique set of episodes has featured 29 scholars from around the world joining the podcast parlor to discuss their life and their work. Abby makes scholar number 30. In 2020, I incorporated a not-for-profit organization and began raising money. In 2021, I introduced the big rhetorical podcast, Emerging Scholar Award. I thought this is my way to give back to the community, a community that gives so much to me. I love meeting new people and I love talking to graduate students. Are you working on some really interesting research? Do you have a new publication out to promote or are you hitting the job market this cycle? I want to talk to you. Reach out to the Big Rhetorical Podcast at thebigrhetoricalgmail.com at or fill out a form on our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. If you would like to give to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please visit our GoFundMe pinned to the top of our Twitter page. Abby Levesque de Camp. Is a graduate student at Northeastern University, and she was nominated for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award by Drs. Ellen Cushman and Kara Messina. Abby DeCamp is a PhD candidate in English, focusing on writing and rhetoric at Northeastern. Abby commits to justice, feminism, anti racism, and queerness in every aspect of her work. Her dissertation, Queer Memes, Forms, Communities, Genres, traces queer memes as community-making practices that centralize humor, joy, and identity exploration. Her mixed-methods approach, which prioritizes community members' voices through interviews, builds off her Computers and Composition article, XMLGBT, A Schema for Encoding Queer Identities in Qualitative Research. Her article describes a coding scheme she develops to demonstrate the way digital tools can function as part of queer methods. Her teaching reinforces her commitments to communities and justice, she has taught reading and writing in the digital age, first year writing, writing for social media, and advanced writing in the disciplines. Her teaching philosophy centers students as community writers to help them develop and transfer skills in new and meaningful ways, seamlessly weaving deep engagements with memes and other genres. Her course evaluations demonstrate students' love for Abby the knowledges that she imparts, and the classroom environment she fosters. One student writes, She is one of the kindest and most knowledgeable professors I've had. Other students describe her as helpful, enthusiastic, funny, engaging, well-organized, and intelligent. In the English department, Abby served as the president and In several other roles of the English Graduate Student Association. She had advocated for the department to purchase lockers for master's students without offices. She co-authored policy recommendations to support black graduate students. Abby is valued deeply in the department and beyond because of her commitments, compassion, and brilliance. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Abby Levesque de Camp. Who are you? What's your name, your title, your institution, your role there? What do you do?
1: Yeah, so I'm Abby levec de Camp. Um, I am a PhD candidate at Northeastern University. I am in the English department on, we have sort of like two sides. I'm on the ret comp side. Um, and I specialize in research on community literacy, on um queer theory, queer rhetoric and composition. Um, I do a lot of media studies uh, work um, and I do a lot of internet culture research and how that connects to literacy and community writing practices.
0: Are you originally from Boston?
1: Um, I'm originally from a small town about an hour south uh, of Boston, which if you're from Massachusetts, essentially is just being from Boston.
0: <laughs> What's the name of that town?
1: Somerset, Somerset, Massachusetts.
0: Somerset, Massachusetts. And so did you get your, did you stay in Boston and Massachusetts for your undergraduate degree?
1: Yes. So I went to undergrad at Leslie University, which is over in Cambridge. Um, it's really fun to tell people that you went to undergrad in Cambridge and watch them assume you went to Harvard. Yeah. Like <laughs> No, no. We share campus with them. Don't get me wrong. But uh, no, it's a very small liberal arts school um, that I loved going to. Uh, And I never left Massachusetts for education. I just stayed K to 12, undergrad, MA, PhD, all in Massachusetts.
0: That's so cool. And so I know you got your bachelor's in English literature and creative writing. And I got a couple of questions about that. But I would admit I've never heard of Leslie University and you mentioned you share a campus with Harvard. Tell us a little bit about the university, your experience there and what that means.
1: Yeah. So um, like I said, Leslie is a super small liberal arts school. It actually, most of the students who go there go for um, degrees in education. So they've got a really, really strong um, program for uh, K to 12 teachers. Uh, I would say like 50% of the people I knew went on to, to teach in K to 12 in whatever sort of subspecialty, um, they took it Leslie, because Leslie requires a second degree in your like area of expertise. So you would get an education degree and a math degree, education degree, and an English degree. And then a lot of people, um, specialize in psychology. Um, and I was like, no, what am I going to do? English and creative writing. I'm gonna do neither of the things that I've really (laughs) before. And we do. We share a a slice of campus with Harvard. I used to have to walk across Harvard to like get to the train because the the road that goes through literally goes right through. Um, Yeah, I think it's like there's like a little area that we're allowed to use that is technically also Harvard's. And I would, every once in a while, I would see people from, like, my high school that went to Harvard, and I'd be like, oh, (laughs) I forgot that other people live here and go here (laughs) that aren't from Leslie, because there's, like, not that many people at Leslie.
0: So you mentioned it was um, kind of in the undergraduate experience where you decided to study English literature and creative writing, bucking the trend, right, of what, of what other folks were doing. I love that. And I think perhaps it's a theme, right, throughout your research and scholarship. Um, so tell me, <laughs> tell me a little bit about choosing English and creative writing and how you, as a scholar, right, moved from that area into digital humanities and digital rhetorics.
1: Yeah, so... It's actually funny. I joke with my friends a lot that, like, me getting a PhD and going into English was motivated purely by spite. Um, In high school, I had a teacher, an English teacher, who said to the class, Well, I know you guys are all choosing your class levels for next year, and some of you are choosing AP, but if I think you should be an AP, I've already talked to you. And she hadn't talked to me. So I did the AP class anyway, because I'm like that as a person. (laughs) And I got a five on the AP uh, language exam. And then I took AP Lit as well. And I was like, well, I'm pretty good at this. And I'd always been like a reader. So I was like, you can't tell me I can't do this. Um, And when I did AP language, I really enjoyed it. Um, And when I applied for college, I was like, well, I've always been a big reader. I might as well do English. And when I got to Leslie, they were like, well, we have English, like a traditional English degree and then a a creative writing degree. And I took a couple of creative writing classes and I was like, you know, this is a lot of fun. And I won't say I was like particularly talented. I obviously like didn't go on to an MFA or anything, but I actually feel like more than my English lit degree, it was my creative writing degree that led me toward my interest in rhetoric and composition because creative writing degrees, the classes, they focus a lot on like workshops and getting writing done obviously, because it's a a fine arts type environment, but it's also a lot of thinking about writing technique and the line between like craft focused writing technique and the ways ret comp people talk about language it's a thin line. So I was like, oh, this feels a lot like what I did in undergrad. Like I already think a lot about craft beyond like sort of the ways lit classes talk about it. And I found it really intriguing. So, um, yeah, I sort of ran with that once I got to my graduate degree. I hadn't initially planned to go to grad school for ret comp. I was really interested in, um, like world literatures. I knew very little about graduate school at the time. Um, and then at Northeastern, I took a class with um, Professor Maya Poe and like being in that class and learning about the ways people talked about writing and the class was about what was good writing and how we assess writing really pushed me, I think like headlong into the field. <laughs>
0: There was one thing I really connected with there. Or there was a lot I really connected with. But there was one thing I wrote down. Spite? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that resonated with me um, as someone who was rejected from like a ninth grade AP English class, right?
1: Yeah. And then you're like, well, w- w- what? I read books. Get out of my way.
0: I won't say the teacher's name, but who are you, Miss Fill in the Blank? You know what I mean? <laughs> Also like pre-graduate school co-workers too, just for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I had a a professor at my undergrad tell me I shouldn't do an MFA. And I was like, well, I'm still going to go to grad school, whatever.
0: (laughs) So you finished up at Leslie. Did you go straight into your master's program?
1: Well, in a way. So I finished Leslie a year earlier than I had initially planned. So I finished in three years instead of four, but you don't really know you're going to do that until you hit your third year. (laughs) So it wasn't like, I didn't have any of the materials ready. So I ended up doing like freelance copywriting work in between pretty much because I was like, well, the plan was to apply senior year, but I'm done. So,
0: Valuable industry experience, I'm sure. Though, uh, maybe not.
2: She
0: hated that job. <laughs> so you did find your way to Northeastern University, uh, staying sticking in Boston or sticking in Massachusetts. Uh, graduate certificate in the digital humanities from Northeastern. Your advisor was Neil Lerner. I want to talk about your, ma- your your master's thesis just a little bit. We'll get to that, but. How did you wind up at Northeastern?
1: Uh, You know, for sort of like the blunt, honest truth, they offered me a scholarship and a job. Um, And that's actually how I got into the digital humanities because they offered me a scholarship that was bigger than another scholarship from another Boston school. And when I said, hey, uh, if I take this offer, I really need to be able to work during it. What kind of jobs are there? They sent over a list. And I applied to one that was like a coordinator position because I had done secretary and office work before that. Uh, So I was like, oh, I can do coordinator stuff. Like I already have done secretary work. Uh, And I applied and that job ended up being a coordinator um, at the digital scholarship group at Northeastern Library where I met Julia Flanders and um, got sort of like I like cannonballed straight in unknowingly to the digital humanities and then I was like well I'll just stay the water's fine like (laughs) this is where (laughs) I, I live now
0: you found your place you found your people right that's awesome tell us what's the title of your master's thesis what's your main claim there how did that project come to be
1: oh I have to try and remember Um, I think it was something along the lines of, um, queer writing and queer writing centers. Um, my central claim, uh, for that was sort of, (laughs) thank you, you said to me in the chat, um, XMLGBT, queer writing, queer writing centers. Um, so my central claim there was, um, essentially that, uh, queer people already exist in writing centers. I was interested in how writing centers can support both queer student writing, but, um, more importantly, and the focus ended up shifting toward the end, uh, to how we support queer writing tutors, um, because all of the people I I interviewed were queer tutors at the writing center. And so we talked a lot about um, how to deal with things like homophobia in writing center sessions and stuff like that. Um, and also my other central claim was that um, there are uh, queer methodologies to think through this kind of research as sort of a meta theme.
0: So I'm gonna ask you a question. Why is this work important?
1: So for me, it ended up being important because I was also a a queer writing center worker and there were very much times where I felt um, not necessarily unsupported, but like that there weren't resources for me to turn to when I had like weird vibes in a session. Um, And I think a lot of queer tutors have felt that way. And I really wanted what felt like otherwise well-meaning writing center administrators and even higher level administrators and like writing programs to be able to look at some research and say like oh this is how we support um, these kinds of workers because I very much felt like our administrators wanted to but didn't really know where to start and I was like well why don't we start by talking to people who've experienced this And finding out what they would have wanted in those situations. Um, For the methodology, it was just that I had done a lot of, like, queer digital humanities work at that point, and I'd done a decent amount of, like, ret comp methodology work at that point, like, taking classes and stuff, and I just felt like a disconnect between the investments of the field in like queer theory and social justice type work and the actual tools I was working through. Um, And that was just me trying to like work through those feelings and find a way to um, sort of find a, a way that felt more right for the tools that I was working with to align with the investments that I had for the project.
0: Where did this project go? What did it become?
1: Yeah, so this project, at this point, I like almost want to just like yeet it into the sun because it's been following me like a shadow for so long. I see um, it on your
0: on your CV doing that.
1: Yeah, just get it out. Um, so I, I wrote this thesis, and then I stayed on at Northeastern, um, which wasn't. I, I was very much like if Northeastern accepts me, I'll probably stay on here, um, but that wasn't like a hundred percent until I did, and then I was like, ooh, now I've got to like keep working on this same project though. I can't switch under the cover of going to a new place. Um, and I took a class with Dr. Moya Bailey, who is now I think at Northwestern in their communications department, and she taught. My like graduate level intro to queer theory course. And it was structured around article submission. So we learned queer theory, but we also worked through the um how to publish your journal article in 12 weeks book. And she was like, pick something you already have. And I was like, well, my most developed piece that I can work with is this thesis. Everything else is a seminar paper and would be a lot more work to. Or so I thought. I didn't. Sometimes I'm like, I should have just picked a seminar paper. But I was like, this is the one that's most publishable in my field. So I picked up the thesis again. Um, and I worked through it and I submitted it at the end of that class uh, because Professor Bailey had been so um, encouraging and said it, it seemed like an important contribution. And Professor Bailey has published in a lot of journals that I respect and is sort of like a um, close subfield to mine. So I submitted it to computers and composition. And you know it was required for the class. So I didn't have high expectations that I would actually get to go anywhere with it. It was just that like I had to submit it for class. Um, and I and they accepted it. And I was like, wait, what <laughs> what? Uh, obviously it was a revise and resubmit, but I was like, wait. pardon um and
0: (laughs) what a great moment
1: (laughs) yeah and then I had spent so much time working on it by then for both the thesis and the article that when it came time to do my you know dissertation prospectus and stuff I was like well I guess we're keeping the methodology from this because I'm not doing it again (laughs) I'm not making up a new one because I already had a coding language written It's like, I'm not doing this again. I'm just going to keep going.
0: If you want to check out, listeners, what Abby's master's thesis became, you can check out the March 2020 edition of Computers and Composition. More after this.
2: Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge-making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity, in localizing knowledge, and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at The Big Rhetorical at gmail.com.
0: Welcome back. Um, let's talk a little bit about your other publications, but let's ease into that. Uh, talking a little bit about your dissertation project. Um, so you're kind of staying in the same, same, same path, I guess is the best best way to describe it, but I'm sure you're changing some things up and analysis is going to be unique. What is your dissertation project?
1: Yeah. So, um, like I said, I kept the methodology, which is the XMLGBT um, markup language that I've been working through. And a lot of my, um, theoretical stuff for that is, uh, the basis for, um, my research, but I've moved away from writing center work and, um, instead I'm working on, um, analyzing and theorizing how queer meme communities function as community literacies. Um, so I had 32 interviews, uh, with, people in queer meme communities, that's everyone from people who lurk and send things in their group chats to people who like make the big content that everyone sends around, um, to talk about how and why people read and write and perform literacy events in these spaces and what that means for them um, as queer individuals. Which was, I finished my interviews last summer, and it was actually a really nice experience. As someone who's, like, chronically online, Mm -hmm. um, it was really nice to get to, like, see some of, it, like, made me feel closer to my community. I was like, yes, I, too, was also chronically online and incredibly, um, like, I wouldn't call it homophobic, but incredibly straight uh, small town growing up.
0: So you're focusing some of your analysis on memes. And then you also mentioned community literacies, which after looking at your application or your nomination packet, I know is something that is, you're also studying and is important to you. So let's kind of combine this. Like, how did you get into memes? Let's start there.
1: <laughs> I got into memes. <laughs> sort of into-
0: question these days, I guess.
1: Yeah. I got into memes because I was like a, a little tiny screen addict as a child. Like, Like, I was very much the child who could not be torn away from the computer, um, starting from, like, way too young age, like, spending hours on Neopets, um, and my parents, bless my parents, they tried so hard to, like, stop me and supervise me, and I just, like, I could not be contained. They tried to do, like, the timer limit on AOL when AOL was a thing, but They didn't understand like internet explorer and stuff. So I would just go in a different browser (laughs) to get around like the time limit, which was set to the particular AOL browser. Um, And I would like get up in the middle of the night and use a computer when they weren't looking or, um, and they both worked. So like there was only so much they could do to stop me, especially once I was like past the age of needing a babysitter. So I was like extremely online from a very young age. And then I just continued being online through college. Um, I was like, I, even now, I, like, I'll sit here and just, you would think that researching it would have made me want to be in mean groups less. But if anything, it's made me be like, I should join this. It's for research. I'm doing my research, definitely, and not wasting my own time. <laughs> looking at like niche meme groups um and I don't know they were such an important part to how I like developed my view of the world like internet forums and the ways people trade content were so much of how I like came to be the adult human I am um that I was like oh I can research this When I learned media studies was a thing I was like Whoa, I'm doing that one.
0: <laughs> so what um what which scholars that study memes do you look to for your work?
1: Um, well, I've been engaging a lot with Lemore Schiffman's um Memes in the Digital Age, I think it is. It's something like that. Um I go back to that book a lot. I would say that's probably the biggest one. Um I've also had some wonderful come conversations, um, with, uh, Erica Sparsby, um, who's done, uh, a lot of work on, like, internet-type communities. Also, um, Lori Grease had this great book called Still Life with Rhetoric, um, which still remains one of my favorite rec comp books of all time, and I think that really spurred, it doesn't identify itself as, like, a meme book, um, it's more about, like, Viral stuff and change over time. And but, like, when I looked at it, I was like, on some level, this is about like how memes function, even if it's not about memes per se. Um, I also this always surprises people, but I very much come at memes from not from like memes as a solid thing, but more because I had a a really significant interest in how communities wrote and also in visual culture. Um, So I've taken a lot of classes with Professor Hilary Chute um, and the the world of theory around visual culture, like the work of Nicholas Mertzoff, W.J.T. Mitchell um, and a lot of um, work around like visual humor theory and stuff like that. Uh, was what really drove me to thinking about memes specifically, as opposed to, like, forums more generally. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because I thought there was really something to say about the ways visual culture interacted with community literacy. Um, And studying under uh, Ellen Cushman, who is really interested in, like, non-alphanumeric language, um, I think also tied into that where I was like, it felt like something was converging there. Like, I have this interest in the internet. I have this interest in, like, how we communicate and compose in ways that both are and are not traditional language. Um, I was like, I could do something with this. And those are the scholars I, I kept returning to. Um, and it was I read. Um, Eric Darnell Pritchard's Fashioning Lives, and it it gave me language to say, like, oh, it's not just that this is interesting, which it is, but that it is interesting to me because it was transformative to how I thought about writing in language. Like, it was my experience of these things that Made me able to be the person that I am, and thus um, made these things interesting. Does that make sense? That was a lot of words to say.
0: It um, does make sense, and it actually—I <laughs> think you touched on and really answered. You know, the next question I wanted to ask was: I asked what got you into memes, right? And I was going to ask why is it important to make that connection to look at the tensions and convergences between memes and community literacy, but you talked a bit about that. So I guess I'm gonna kind of refashion my question and say why community literacy, right? What got you interested in learning about how different communities write and communicate?
1: Yeah, so um, that was spurred by getting the opportunity to take a rec comp course with Professor Ellen Cushman who is now um, the chair of my disc. So that worked out well for me long-term. Yes. Um, And she taught, I think the class was, I remember I audited it because it was the end of my master's degree and I was writing my thesis at the time and you don't take classes when you write thesis. So I audited her literacies course and so much of the stuff was so fascinating for me because on some level I love language as language hence like a creative writing degree and stuff but even more I was fascinated by like language as connection language as community stuff like that um, because like like many a bookish child and many a chronically online child so much of my interpersonal, interaction and development was around writing and reading like every kid who has ever sat on the floor of for me it was Walden books uh and read a book while their mom did the rest of the shopping because you preferred to sit on the floor and read and bless those store employees because I was like hey they were like yeah I guess you can sit in the YA section and read um Like that was how I made connections to other people and how I learned um, about my myself. So when I started finding language for it um, through people like Professor Cushman um, and the many, many people uh, we read in that class, I was like, oh, like this is something I'm really interested in exploring more. And there were parts of that field that were young enough that I was like, excited to be part of um that I was like oh like I know a lot about the internet I can write about something more than a blog you know like I'm essentially an expert on being on the internet so I don't have to like go learn about these communities I already know them so now I can apply this newfound language and knowledge um to For me, it was always like, oh, I can find some truth, I guess, like make a framework that feels more true to the real experience was always my interest in pursuing.
2: I
0: want to talk about a forthcoming, is it a book chapter, it looks like, in the Routledge Handbook of Queer Rhetorics, which is going to be edited or is edited by Jonathan Alexander and Jackie Rhodes. A couple of folks who pop up on my social media, people you may know list all the time. The title of your chapter is Queer Memes as Rhetorical Scenes. That's a phenomenal title. And listeners, Abby is grinning because she knows it. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that project, your claims, tease some findings if you want to.
1: Yeah, so um, I still can't believe that I have a chapter in that. I (laughs) I have like stars in my eyes when I think about it, especially because so many of the people in that collection are people that I like already respect. I was like, I'm doing it, I'm part of a field. Um, So, yeah, uh, my central claim there is the same as my central claim for um, my dissertation. Which is that, um, uh, so first and foremost, that queer memes are rhetorical, that they are a rhetorical scene, hence the, the title, but that these, um, these groups or these sorts of, even when they're not formal groups, they're often like little pods or channels of uh, content, um, that they represent, um, queer community writing in a way that I I felt wasn't being explored. Um, And I have some claims about what I think a meme is. And I think that's been a particularly fun endeavor for me is to say like, what are memes? Like beyond the basic form of an image macro with text, like what rhetorically is a meme? How is it functioning? Um, as language, as citation, um, essentially that uh, these rhetorical scenes have certain kinds of um, potentials for power. So they have Mm. potentials to start to move us toward justice. I talk about um, a little bit the ways that they can... um, help move us toward better uh, material worlds for queer people. Um, Cause I think that can often feel abstract. So I connect a little to queer theory. Um, and one of the things I really wanted to do with this work is to draw through line from scholars like bell hooks and other um, Black queer feminists to say, like, some of this work has already been done, and it's just about seeing it in the light of these new forms to say, like, we can draw a line from rhetorical communities to possibilities of better material worlds. Um, my other fun thing that I do is I talk about memes as, um, citation and the ways that that citation is a rhetorical move in and of itself um and I think that in particular is uh exciting I guess.
0: So do you have like an all-time favorite meme or maybe it's best to ask do you have a favorite meme right now or one that has unique power right as you were talking?
1: So That's actually really funny that you ask that, because in my participant interviews, one of the things I ask is, what is your favorite queer meme? And the number one response was always, oh, my God, that's such a hard question. Give me a minute. Um, I will say. I I don't know if I have a favorite meme of all time. I do have like a favorite meme flavor, I guess, which is. I. I love a good deep fried meme.
0: Okay. What does that deep fried (laughs) meme?
1: A deep fried meme is like, usually there are several layers of memeage to it. So it's a meme that often references at least one other meme, if not more. Um, Sometimes they'll have this purposely DIY look to them. So they'll have been done in MS paint instead of a meme generator. They don't have the clean look of like traditional image macros. They might um, have purposeful or not purposeful JPEG compression. Um, and they often, uh, they're interested in, and this is like my my visual culture ca- ha- coming out. Um, I, I love those because there's something about um, the ways they are both purposely and not purposely representing like, the, the machineness of them, they, um, they don't let you ignore the composedness um, and the ways that machines modify uh, visuals that I just find really uh, fun and interesting. The same way that like um, I find zines interesting because you can't ignore the handedness of them, the handmadeness um, this is like the digital version of that handmadeness. You can't sort of ignore the compression. It's such a, a visual um, cue to the material reality of its making. I think my, <laughs> my husband hates that this is the meme I love right now because he can't stand the audio. But my favorite meme right now is the TikTok audio, where for some reason... There's not even that many videos for it. I think TikTok just knows that I like this kind of stuff. Um, it's usually an overlay of like a cat uh, or some other like weird video sometimes. And the audio is just, you smell like a baka, Aaron Jaeger, which is, Aaron Jaeger's an anime character from Attack on Titan. And baka is the Japanese word for like idiot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've just been saying that. All the time around the house. My husband's like, stop telling me I smell like a baka. And I have no idea. I could not explain to you for a million dollars why I find that as funny as I do. Uh, But that is my favorite meme right now. (laughs)
0: I think that's funny that you say that like, because I'll sometimes cackle if I'm like doom scrolling and I see a meme that's funny. And my, my wife will be like, what are you laughing? I'm just be like, it's, it's a meme. Like I don't even know why it's that funny or why I'm laughing so loudly about it. You know, um, I think that's kind of a beauty with them.
1: Um, yeah. With- and I have an extremely not online husband. So I get the joy of being the one to tell him about all of them because he's never seen them before. So I'll be like, mm-hmm. I started saying the meme line and he was like what does that mean (laughs) because normally I'll explain to him like oh well comes from this thing I was like this one doesn't have one we don't know no one knows where it came from that's why I like it he was like you are absolutely unhinged right now
0: (laughs) so are you changing this semester
1: uh, yeah, I just finished up my summer teaching and in two weeks I will be starting my fall class.
0: What are you teaching this fall?
1: I am teaching. I'm really excited for this because it's actually my second time teaching this particular elective. I'm mm-hmm. teaching reading and writing in the digital age, uh-huh. um, which I taught once before because um, Professor Ryan Cordell used to teach it. and. The last time I taught it, he was very busy doing some like admin type stuff for it. And they were like, we need someone else to teach the class. And he's like, me, please, Um, because I would like a job somewhere down the line. (laughs) And then then they offered it to me again this semester because uh, Professor Cordell um, has gone to gosh, I can't remember, um, one of the library schools in Illinois, I think, or something like that, to teach digital humanities there, they're like, hey, do you want to teach this again? I like, yes, I do, though, last time I taught this, uh, it was the semester we went online halfway through the semester, so I didn't get to, like, teach the way, I, we were so busy just trying to make sure students, like, got home, and, like, were alive that it ended up going async and i'm just looking forward to getting to teach it at least synchronously online this time um we'll see how the delta variant goes though
0: what are some of the things you all do in that class do you theme it what are some of the learning outcomes
1: yes so um we have i usually do like a few units um, so like two or three week units on a given theme. So we have like a meme week. Um, we have a video game week. We have, um, like a podcast week. Um, I teach readings like, um, Annette V's coding is digital literacy. Um, I teach a lot of articles on, um, video games as composition, God, I can't remember the name of it, but I teach this one really great article that my students always really love. Um, And I feel terrible because I'm sure that the person would be hyped to hear that someone's teaching this in undergrad class. But um, the article talks about um, things like HP bars and like counting systems and like armor classes and stuff as a kind of composition in video games. My students always love that. Um, after this interview, I'll have to look up what the, the name of the article is. That was in Computers and Composition, though, I think. Um, I, um, and I love doing labs in this class. Um, and labs are what I call, like, our hands-on days, because for me, there's always two parts to, like, a, a writing classroom. The first is, like, that theoretical part where we do readings and we learn different frameworks not too far afield from like how in a math class, the teacher will teach you how to do a certain kind of equation one day. And then we have the lab component, just like how in, I don't know, like a chemistry class, you would go to the lab and apply some of the things you've learned. We have these hands-on days where it's about exploring with our new frameworks, um, how these things function. So for instance, for our video game lab day, I had them all bring in either um, like screenshots or videos of them playing, or for many of them, if it was a handheld or phone game, they brought in and then they played through with their group mates and talked and narrated aloud what was happening and what they were doing and how it fit in to the frameworks we were thinking through. So that was everything from I had students who played through their old Webkins game from when they were children. Um, I had students play um, Stardew Valley is a very popular one. I even had a student who um, brought in footage of them playing, it wasn't Destiny, it might have been Halo, like some um, like shooter type game for uh, the Xbox, and talk about it as it related to digital reading and writing, the ways they have to read the screen um, stuff like that. I, for one, always play, um, Super Mario Odyssey as my example to walk them through the ways we have to read and write, um, and the ways we compose, um, in these digital spaces. Um, other popular ones include, like, Town of Salem, um, the Stanley Parable is always really, really popular, um, but yeah, I, I'm really excited to go back to getting to do lab days, which I have less of a chance to do, in like traditional first year writing and writing across the disciplines classes.
0: That sounds like such a fun class. I want to be in there. That sounds so cool. So you're the winner, right, of the, the Emerging Scholar Award, which is so exciting. Um, so I'm going to ask a question that I may or may not include, I think, but like, advice for other emerging scholars to manage teaching service and research?
1: Yeah, that's such a question. tough
0: one. I know. <laughs> I know. That's why I said I may t- cut it out. <laughs>
1: um, I would say one of the things that lets me do the stuff I do is making sure I have a really secure social safety net is like my number one thing so I have a group of um sort of fellow scholars not even just necessarily ret people though um I will say Dr. Karamasina is one of my dearest and closest friends um but several of the other people in our sort of like friend group that offer each other support um aren't in retcon, and sometimes that's nice because that means they can offer perspective and be like no actually like that's not you don't actually need to worry about that or like, you know, that person's just being sort of like obnoxious and that's not an actual thing to worry about because um, it's easy to get stuck in your own discipline and your own disciplines, like investments and in certain kinds of um, work or power differentials and to feel devalued. Um, so it's nice to have someone come from the outside and say like, oh, like that's just Fields being fields, you know. Um, And of course, I've got a a very, very supportive husband, which is a huge privilege um, to be able to have someone who's very understanding about, you know, taking over all of the housework while I do stuff, um, or who's willing to do all the cooking while I work on my dissertation for a few months. Um, And that's been really, really helpful. I will say the other thing and I don't know, maybe this is me being like, um, I guess like naive or too optimistic, but one of the things that lets me do all the stuff I do, um, is that I never really do it for the CV line. Um, I can't, I've never been able to do stuff even when I probably should just because it's good for me. Um, in the same way that I have to bribe myself to take a multivitamin by making it one of the gummy multivitamins. um, I only do the things that are good for my CV because I am really, really sincere in wanting to pursue them. So when I pursue service things, it's because I really genuinely care about the committee I'm on or about getting certain kinds of work done. When I do my teaching, you know, it's like an all-in emotional commitment for me. It's never just to get the class done. Same with my research. It's like, if I never get a job, uh, you know, at least I did what I like. We certainly, um, Professor Chu has said to me on a few occasions, we don't do this for the money. We certainly don't do it for the fame. So we might as well do what we genuinely really find intellectually interesting. And I follow that uh, like a guiding star. And that gives me some of what I need to get through, obviously, the exhausting um, parts. Though I have to be careful not to let that tip work-life balance, which is a difficult tightrope to walk, The, the, the thin line between caring very deeply about your work and letting neoliberal institutions take advantage of your labor
0: i wrote it down (laughs) if i if i never get a job at least i did what i liked i love it abby thanks so much for sitting with me for an interview it was great to meet and chat with you
1: yeah absolutely thank you so much
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with abby levesque the camp i want to thank abby for sitting with me for an interview and i'm excited to see what she does next well that does it for this episode of the big rhetorical podcast but before i go i want to give a special shout out to our judges for the big rhetorical podcast emerging scholar award thanks for the work you did I also want to shout out The Professor Is In. They noticed the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award and generously offered to co-sponsor the award and raise the prize value to $500. Thanks, Karen and Kel, for helping make this possible. Y'all rock. I'll be back next week with either another entry in our Emerging Scholar series or an interview with an author about his new book project. I haven't decided yet, so stay tuned. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Cahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa, Saponi, Maharan, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi and Wakamal Suin.